It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who vaccinate even if it's not spread from person to person. For example, <laughs> they vaccinate against tetanus. Yeah, crazy. And, and who even think it's okay to require a vaccine that doesn't spread from person to person, especially when it comes to kids' health. It's true. Now, we're not going to mess up this time. We're introducing ourselves from the get-go. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And boy, do we have a show for you. We are going to pivot a little bit away from COVID as much toward policy and legislative activities. Mm. So we have hold on to your seats. I know you paid for the whole thing, but you only need the edge. We need the edge. (laughs) We had or I actually had an interesting discussion with North and Becky from Safe Communities Coalition, which is a brand new 501c4 involved in really making sure that what our state policy makers and legislators are doing is based in science. I am very sorry that I missed that interview. I just couldn't get it to work out, but uh, I'm excited to listen. He was busy doing doctor stuff. Yeah, that's what I tell people. That's right. Really, he's just hanging out, like writing hip hop mission. <laughs> I was still memorizing the lyrics to Family Madrigal at the time. I mean, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Thanks. In the meantime, though, um, I want to do some around the webs, and I have a really exciting one. Okay, go to it. Like amazingly thrilling. I like I you're think... gonna only use the edge of your seat, kind of thrilling. Exactly. So last week, Voices for Vaccines got its app approved yeah. in the Apple Store, nice. which is no small feat. The... So I am way excited about this. This Mm -hmm. app was like a year in the making um, and we'll be refreshing it every week with new content. And it has just a number of things that I want to talk about. First of all, it has a debunking tool. So you Mm -hmm. can go in and choose, you know, which vaccine and what concern and if there's any ingredients or anything that um, you want to look at as far as being debunked. And it'll come up with a series of articles and videos and graphics that you can look at. Um, It also has a start a conversation tool which helps you sort of launch a vaccine conversation with somebody who might have questions and concerns. And so you can kind of pick who this person is, how well you know them, where their feelings are about vaccines, uh, and it'll sort of give you some pointers to talk to them and point you towards some tools to share with them. And then it has a take action tab, which is where you really get to be the person involved in advocacy, whether it's sharing a graphic on your social media, whether it's uh, sharing a photo with us of your fabulous Mm -hmm. vaccinated family or volunteering um, to do some real action. 
all of these things are contained in this fantabulous app that is now ready for free download. <laughs> Our gift to the world. It's pretty. I like the interface. Um, you know how many times I've been on the internet and there's been a bunch of bunk everywhere. And I was like, I just need some tools to kind of scrape this off. It's got so it's yeah, got some yeah. debunking tools right there at your fingertips. You bet. I like that. I really imagined the debunking tool. I was just yeah. thinking about, you know, when you're standing on the playground and someone says something and you're like, oh, I wish I had access to information about that right here. Well, now yeah. you do. It's just right there on your phone, which you always have on you. And you can just go yeah. through and be like, oh, uh, blah, 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 blah. So it's good. That's cool. To, to get that bunk off of there. Yes. Well, strong work. This is great. Thank you. Everybody I'm needs sure. to go download it. It was easy to find on the App Store. It was. And if you uh, can't find it, just go to the resources tab on our voicesforvaccines.org website. And I have it linked there as well. And as soon as it's accepted on the Google App Store, yep. which is probably going to be by the time this podcast is published, that will be there as well. Very cool. Well, I don't know if this part, my around the web has made it in there, but I was going to talk a little bit about at least one particular canard that has some developments. Alrighty, already. <laughs> so um, this is both exciting and kind of like, wow, um, uh, that Japan relaunched its HPV vaccination drive. So if you've been doing, so first of all, everybody remember that there are vaccines out there besides COVID. So everybody remember there's a vaccine called human papillomavirus vaccine that uh, prevents viruses that cause several kinds of cancer, uh, including cervical cancer is one of the main ones, but also uh, some other genital area cancers and head and neck cancers. And so it's a big deal. And one of the anti-vaccine talking points has always been, well, look at Japan. They had all the safety problems. They took it off the market. You think that where's, you know, why, what are they doing right that we're doing wrong? What are they looking at? It, there's a great article in Science Magazine, um, which we will link to in the notes, um, that kind of goes through that about the, the kind of uh rationale or kind of lack thereof for pulling the hpv vaccine off of the list of recommended vaccines in japan uh in i think around 2013 and you know similar to a lot of other things that we see it just was based on some reports some things hit in the media and a recommendation was made by an advisory group to the ministry that oversees this uh and they pulled it from their recommended vaccines and, and the, the rate of vaccination uh, in Japan for HPV vaccine plummeted from, uh, I wanna say it was from, uh, I can't remember what high percentage, from 70% to less than 1%, just dropped. Holy and, cats. And that makes sense, right? I mean, it yeah. wasn't, I don't think it was, I don't obviously know the entirety of how the health system works in Japan, but my sense would be that it was, you know, not recommended by doctors, it was not, paid for most likely and it had a now bad name so people were not seeking it out i presume so um now they've reinstated it uh and the sad thing is that it's i mean the damage has already been done there was a modeling study in 2020 that looked at what 
is the impact of this negligible vaccination rate from this like six plus year period. Well, this was looking at a six year period. So this was 2013 to 2019 was the period they were looking at. And they estimated that it would result in 25,000 preventable cervical cancer cases and up to 5,700 deaths over, over that period, like from that period of time's lack of vaccination. So I am glad that that is back and going. Um, it's gonna save a lot of lives and it's nice to be able to say to anti-vaccine activists who bring up Japan and say, no, look, they figured it out. It took a while, but they realized that people, that this vaccine was safe and effective and they put it back on their schedule. Well, thank goodness. That is such a relief to me, not just because of its use and disinformation, but 5,000 women is a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe we have to reframe that for people during COVID times, because, you know, when mm -hmm. a million people in a country die from one disease in the course of like two years, yeah. 5,000 maybe doesn't sound like a lot anymore, but it is 5,000 women who mm -hmm. are, you know, usually in their mid thirties, late thirties, that's a lot of people to die a really painful, horrible death. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't count all of the, you know, head and throat um, cancers. Yeah. Head and neck cancers and the other cancers. And that's one of the things that I want to emphasize every time that I talk about this vaccine is it is a vaccine that is not just a cervical cancer vaccine. It also has a great amount of benefit in reducing other cancers, including those head and neck cancers, which means there's a great amount of benefit for males to receive it as well. Exactly. And, you know, just to put a point on it too, you know, when we, when we look at deaths versus the burden of disease, all of these cancers, the HPV vaccine can prevent are horrible can cancers to have treated and cured. Like you don't want your children to go through that. Yeah. And th that's really all I'm going to say, because honestly, I once almost passed out at a large conference where they were showing photos of the treatment because it was so terrible. And I don't, you know, I don't want that unnecessarily in people's minds, but I just, that is not something I want my sons to go through at all. Yep. Full stop. Um, in addition to, I don't want them to pass something along to their partners. Right. So, I mean, that's fantastic. It also kind of calls to mind, you know, the United States, likes to wax poetic about things that happen in other countries, even mm -hmm. though our imperfect public health system is actually pretty great. For whatever reason, we <laughs> like to say, oh, but hey, Japan doesn't give this vaccine. The other country that we've been looking at for two years for reasons I don't get is Sweden. <laughs> yes. Hell, look at Sweden just, just pretending like there's no pandemic and everyone's happy and it's lollipops and unicorns in Sweden. Yeah, it didn't work out real well for them. It did not. In fact, there was a Nature article that really looked at what actually happened in Sweden. And apparently it was a lot of people getting sick and dying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have that. I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but it it is it is far more uh concerning than uh, you know 
the those kinds of uh, impressions would make you think the big one that's the big piece of that article that stood out for me is how elderly very ill people would go to the hospital during this time of swedish covid denialism and they would be clearly sick and instead of being admitted to the hospital and treated and maybe put on a respirator of some of some kind like they would have in the united states they were given morphine sent home and died so it wasn't just the incredible spread of the disease throughout the country but it was an entire denialism that leaked also into not treating the disease not even you know giving supplemental oxygen to people who couldn't breathe so you know i've i've been on this drumbeat of you know i'm glad i'm not in sweden while Uh you know all my uh telegram and gab feeds are all crazy about sweden i'm just kidding i'm not on gab (laughs) but i do monitor anti-vaxxers on telegram yeah okay and and it's really just like as it turns out we had you know some a b comparisons between you know how sweden did it or even abc's right like we've got like sweden like a country with high vaccine uptake like you know uab or singapore or korea Mm -hmm. and then we've got the united states which is a a mishmash and uh we can see that even the united states fared better with its pockets of COVID denialism and its uneven policies and all the things that make the United States what it is. It turns out our public health system still does a pretty great job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of things you can point to that were done wrong (laughs) or could have been done better, but I, I think you're right. I think we have just one of the things that can't be, uh said enough is how passionate public health workers are for public Mm -hmm. health so even if you don't always have the greatest things coming from the kind of uh, science communication and leadership and stuff like that you have a lot of people on the ground who are working really hard to reduce the risk for people absolutely i mean let's just think of i mean let's just say hooray to our public health workers right now because they had two years where people were run out of their jobs they were threatened Mm -hmm. they were underfunded they were given tasks to do that didn't make any sense they their their jobs were limited and they still were able to go out there and save lives with the strong belief that what they did was important and and i'll say this too like when it comes to public health right and this is Mm -hmm. something that dr alan hinman first told me and that's that you know if if you're looking at say an oncologist or someone who works in cancer they can sort of look at a person and say this person had cancer and i saved their life everyone Mm -hmm. in public health says i know i'm saving lives but we none of us know whose life i'm saving right yep and so that's why they remain unsung heroes it's really easy to say but look at these people died so obviously public health failed uh Mm -hmm. but i mean the truth of the matter is that against great odds uh (laughs) i just i I am feeling very positive about the people who work in public health and uh i i think that that is definitely something that we can uh celebrate um that being said uh i know that funding for public health has actually dipped this year 
yeah. that there are places in public health that, for example, funding of COVID vaccines um, has dipped so that if there's a universal call for fourth dose, we don't have that. Yep. That does that doesn't actually exist in the funding. Um, you know, also, uh, just to put a little funding note on there for everybody, there is a little budget item in the proposed budget um, from the president that would make sort of a companion to the vaccines for children program that would be vaccines for adults. So all those uninsured and undersured adults could get free vaccination the way their kids could. So, you know, there's all sorts of ways we can support public health in our vaccine program, and I hope everyone's paying attention. All right, that was that was sort of a journey. I'm sorry, we went from your thing and we went <laughs> we from got all the way around the web that time. <laughs> the, the actual world <laughs> and the web. That was fantastic. Worldwide. Well, let's go to our interview with Becky and North from Safe Communities and uh, listen to what they have to say. And we are joined now by Becky Christensen and North Saunders from Safe Communities Coalition and Action Fund. Uh, Becky is a former surgical care nurse from Colorado, and North is a grassroots organizer who has worked in Maine, particularly uh successfully in the vaccine sphere too i will say and so we are thrilled to have you here today welcome becky and north thank you for having us karen we're really excited to be here one of the reasons i wanted to have both of you on our podcast today is that you're sort of newer to the game and there are probably many of our podcast listeners who do not know who safe communities is and so I'm hoping you can sort of give us some background on um, sort of who are you? What, what should we know about Safe Communities Coalition? Yeah, well, we're excited to, to introduce ourselves to your audience. Um, so the Safe Communities Coalition, we're a 501c4 political advocacy organization. And so our, our mission is to support pro-vaccine legislation support pro-vaccine legislators, and then hold anti-vaccine legislators accountable to their constituents. And the, the reason that we're here in this space is based on our own personal um, experience doing vaccine advocacy. And so, like you mentioned, I live in Maine, and my professional background is in grassroots organizing and political fundraising. And when Maine was attempting to remove non-medical exemptions for school entry in 2019, uh, my partner, who's a pediatrician, encouraged me to go testify. And I thought it was a, an interesting political diversion. You know, I'd worked on presidential campaigns and national issues for a long time and thought it'd be fun to go up to the state house and testify. And when I arrived, I was blown away by the, the anti-vaccine activists. There were many more of them than the pro-vaccine folks. Um, and they were well-organized, had developed talking points. And so I realized there was gonna be a real political fight to get uh, this common sense uh, legislation passed and make sure that our, our schools and communities were safe from preventable diseases. And so with a group of other parents, we formed a volunteer-led organization called Maine Families for Vaccines, recruited constituents and 
particular legislative districts to put pressure on the elected officials uh, and got the legislation passed by, um, by just one vote in the main Senate. The anti-vaccine organizers uh, then went out and collected 75,000 signatures to overturn the legislation through what's called the people's veto. So any bill in Maine that's passed by the legislature can be overturned through a referendum. So they collected their signatures and our, uh, our ragtag group of parents quickly professionalized, uh, formed a state political action committee to oppose the veto effort, uh, raised a bunch of money, uh, and eventually won. Uh, 73% of Maine voters supported the removal of non-medical exemptions for school entry. Uh, and it was, it was a great, great victory. It was the largest referendum win in Maine's history. And so through that effort, I got introduced to a bunch of other pro-vaccine activists across the country, They wondered how we did the work and how we organized. Uh, And through those uh, connections, I met Becky, um, who is in Colorado. And she has a wonderful story about how she came to the pro-vaccine work that we're now doing. Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much, Karen, for having us on. Um, Like you said, I am in Colorado with background in nursing. And a few years ago, I shifted gears and went into politics. So I did some uh, state and local campaign management. And then for two years, I worked as a legislative aide at our state house. While I was there, um, there was a a vaccine-related bill. Unlike uh, Maine, we were not removing non-medical exemptions. It was simply modernizing the exemption process. Prior to that, a parent could basically write on a napkin, uh, we don't believe in vaccines, and hand it to the school nurse. Um, So during that legislation, like North, I was blown away at the anti-vaccine activists and how politically uh, sophisticated they were working inside the Capitol. Um, they very much understood the process, um, and there were a lot of them. They were loud, and um, they were angry. We experienced death threats, um, you know, negative messaging being posted all over people's neighborhoods, like put on people's doors. Um, and when I heard Uh, representatives on the House floor repeating vaccine misinformation in 2019, I was, it was obvious that they had been lobbying in that building for many years before this legislation was introduced. Um, So in January of 2020, out of concern for this growing movement, uh, I started calling around the country to anyone that would get on the phone with me and saying, you know, is this a problem? Are, you know, is there anybody that's combating this? Because they are starting to work in elections as well as lobbying inside the Capitol. Um, and so what I found out was there wasn't um, and, um, you know, that it was very much needed. So we spent all of 2020 kind of, you know, once I met North, spring of 2020, getting this concept off the ground and deciding kind of what we wanted to be. And I just have to say that in that process, while I was kind of navigating the various different state legislatures and uh, legislation that we were seeing, I also had to navigate the world of vaccine misinformation that I would hear, be it from the, the people that were lobbying or the, the lawmakers themselves. And this podcast was a huge help for me in learning to navigate some of those pieces of misinformation and what, you know, what little hint of truth might have been in some of the things that I was hearing. So thank you very much for helping us get off the ground. Yay. <laughs> thank you. That's, um, that's really heartening. And I, I appreciate that. I also appreciate the work that you do. Uh, one of my questions really is sort of a technical question. And that is that, uh, you know, the work that Voices for Vaccines does is different 
than the work that you do, mostly because we are a 501c3. We have a wonderful big umbrella organization known as the Task Force for Global Health, which does amazing things to bring health equity across the globe in ways that no one else is doing. Um, We're really happy to be a part of that. But because of that, we basically don't support legislation um, at all. And I know we're constrained. So why do you think it was important to start a 501c4, given that, you know, all the constraints of 501c3s and other reasons that we might not even be able to see? Yeah, I think that's a that's the the role that we we hope to fill and in, in, in our filling on the ground in, in state legislative advocacy across the country right now. Uh, there are a lot of organizations just like Voices for Vaccines that um, do great vaccine education work, and in our role is to work with them to have great uh, science based policies but make sure our legislators know that it's not just the medical professionals, it's not just the public health professionals that are advocating for those policies, that there's a, a pro-vaccine majority in this country, um, that there are everyday citizens, the vast majority of whom vaccinate their kids and are vaccinated themselves, um, and to show those legislators that um, we trust our scientists, we trust our our doctors, we trust our public health professionals, uh, and that we need to have policies that reflect good scientific evidence. And so we're, we go the last mile. Uh, there's lots of great groups, but we help organize them. We recruit parent advocates to testify at state capitals to, to contact their legislators uh, and really make sure that um, the great work that Voices for Vaccines and others uh, is doing is amplified in the halls of the, the legislatures. And, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for doing that. It's really actually pretty amazing. I'm going to ask you in a while about that whole majority thing. But first, I really want to talk about what we're seeing in our state houses across the country. Are there sort of buckets or themes in the legislation that we're seeing as a whole? Is I mean, is there like a, a song book and, and are there particular songs being sung to our legislators? Yeah, you know, that's really interesting because um, when we were forming this organization, as you can imagine, in the middle of a pandemic around March of 2020, when it all hit, I thought, oh, there's going to be no need for this project I'm working on because everybody's going to see what the world looks like with vaccines and bad vaccine legislation is just going to go away. Um, And of course, the opposite happened. And so what we've seen this year... um, so far over 1,000 pieces of anti-vaccine legislation submitted in uh, state houses across the country. Um, and they do seem to fall in some pretty some pretty clear buckets. Um, one of those is, um, of course, a, a ban for employees or governments for a COVID-19 vaccine. It's pretty specific. Uh, we also are seeing our state public health organizations and departments targeted, whether, whether it be through funding, through their authority, or their ability to market vaccines, which we know is a very important part of our uh, state health department's role. Um, another one is to make vaccine status a protected class, just like race, religion, or ethnicity, with either civil or criminal penalties. Um, and then another one is natural immunity, where they come in and uh, bring in so-called experts that argue that natural immunity to COVID should count in lieu of a vaccine card uh, 
claiming that it is either superior to having had a vaccine, or in some cases they're claiming that it's dangerous to receive a vaccine if you've already had COVID. Um, so those are kind of the ones that we've seen a lot of so far this year. The new one that's popped up is consumer protection from indemnified products, meaning that you require someone to have a product, a consumer product, or use a product that the manufacturer is liability or has no liability or liability-free product, which sounds just like to me that Dell Bigtree mm-hmm. wrote that bill. That's very, mm-hmm. very much anti-vaxxer 101 language. Dell Bigtree. Um, so that sounds very sneaky to me. It sounds like they're trying to pull a fast one on legislators who perhaps aren't paying close attention to that particular issue. Um, you know, is do you think that's what's going on, or are they just being coy and trying to spread misinformation? I think that they are. I think both. I think they're trying to be coy with misinformation, and I think they're trying to keep it um, from being understood as anti-vaccine legislation because they don't have to use the word vaccine or immunization in those bills. They're simply coming at it as a consumer protection uh, piece of legislation, which generally legislators support, um, not, but they may not understand that they're not really protecting consumers. They're putting their constituents at risk. And so when we think about, um, oh, hang on a second, Kevin, I'm going to ask North a question. Yeah, I, I just want to kind of echo that legislators and, and anti-vaccine activists, they are trying to be sneaky. And given the opportunity they see with the, the pandemic, they're throwing every idea they have up against the wall to see what sticks uh, more so than they've ever done before. And so if you look at the volume of legislation that could be considered anti-vaccine, it's far greater than it's, it's ever been. And so the, the anti-vaccine activists are emboldened by the pandemic to see how far they can push their agenda. Um, and, and we're really worried. And that's why we're, we're hard at work in state houses across the country organizing constituents, parents, advocates to, to demonstrate to their legislators that they, they want good uh, public health and pro-vaccine policies enacted. Right. So how many bills are we talking here uh, that are anti-vaccine across the country? Uh, so far, we have seen over a thousand. Wow. So are those like evenly distributed? Are we looking at like 200 bills per state or is are there places where this is happening more than other places there's certainly places it's happening more than others um and it seems to be in states where they have gotten progress in the past with anti-vaccine legislation and were able to make some progress last year um so for instance we saw over 57 last by my last count in oklahoma uh 36 in louisiana um and we've seen you know, only a handful in some other states. For example, where I am in Colorado, we only had four, but four is still more than what we had before. Um, And so for those to be getting that kind of traction is incredibly frightening. And what's even more unsettling about it is that whether these bills make it to the governor's desk or not, it's being used as a platform for misinformation, an additional platform where we know that you know we're running, it's rampant right now in our society. Um, And that also the anti-vaccine groups, which are like I said, very sophisticated and very organized, use it for recruitment, use it for fundraising, use it to legitimize their, their, their status and their uh, stance on, on vaccines and vaccine requirements. 
That's really interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, how much in danger is the school entry requirement for vaccines in our country? And let me just say, you know, in with some background in that, I know that in the 70s and 80s, Betty Bumpers and Rosalind Carter um, formed Every Child by Two specifically to work hard to make sure that people were just aware that their kids needed vaccines, right? Kids were missing out on vaccines then because parents didn't realize that that they needed their shots. And so enacting these school entry requirements really served as a way of making sure kids were protected. And, and, and they acted in the same way that things like training or they acted in the same way that things such as screening for speech delays, screening for um, developmental, developmental readiness, screening hearing, screening vision, all of those things can catch kids. And since almost all kids go to school, it's a, it's a really great place to catch children who have particular health needs. And so that long preamble, are, are we at a place where we're going to stop protecting kids who are going to school because of anti-vaccine legislation that's happening now? They certainly are trying. That has been the goal of the anti-vaccine activists since prior to COVID. Uh, we saw bills here and there that really didn't get much traction prior to the pandemic that are now getting traction to remove our school entry requirements, whether that be through a legislator not realizing that when they're saying no vaccine requirements um, or not realizing that when they introduce a bill that uh, says there's no COVID-19 requirements in schools, that it would be very easy in a year or two to edit that language in that bill and just take out the word COVID-19 and it would be removing all school entry requirements. We certainly have seen a few bills that uh, are very generalized that would remove them and as well as the consumer protection bills that I just spoke of would remove school requirements. So we certainly are in very real danger of that being a reality in the next couple years unless we get our voices uh, to our legislators and let them know that we value uh, and have the right to, quite frankly, uh, environments free from preventable disease. I think that it's uh it paints a, a dire picture that we're entertaining these bills that would remove school vaccine requirements. I think the reality is, is the majority of lawmakers recognize the role that vaccines have played in our public health system for decades uh, and their importance in preventing diseases running rampant in our communities. And so while it's frightening that the anti-vaccine activists have as much traction as they do coming out of the pandemic. Um, our hope and our activities are directed to make sure that the pro-vaccine majority is heard and that legislators are accountable to their constituents and that we preserve school entry requirements uh, and that we continue to expand uh, the protections that, that vaccines allow us in, in our modern society. Absolutely. I could not echo that more if I tried. But I'm hoping we can drill down a little bit more and maybe make me more afraid, if that's okay with you. What do you think is, if you were to pinpoint one, one bill that really poses the greatest threat 
to our vaccination program right now? So I, I think the the bill or the, the type of legislation that we're most concerned about is the legislation that creates a protected class around the, the choice to be vaccinated. The other protected classes in, in our country, whether it's based on religion or, or ethnicity or gender, um, they are not based on a choice. They're, um, you choose whether to vaccinate your family or to vaccinate yourself against preventable diseases. Uh, and there are consequences for, for making that choice. You know, you're not protecting yourself from a preventable disease. In, in this country, there are penalties for, for making the wrong choices, whether that's uh, drinking too much and driving, there are severe penalties for that. There are consequences for, for not following traffic laws. Uh, and so we strongly believe that a choice, whether to vaccinate yourself, does not guarantee you the, the same protections uh, against discrimination that a protected class would. Uh, and so by protecting that potential class, we would remove one of the most powerful tools in our public health arsenal uh, to protect our, the people that live in our country. And so the freedom that some people want is going to impinge on the, the liberties that are protected in our Constitution. And so... Right. And so it's really, you know, one of those things when you're looking at, you've made the choice not to vaccinate, but people who are going through chemotherapy didn't make the choice to have cancer. People who, um, you know, have an immunocompromising condition didn't make the choice to be sick. But you've made the choice to remain vulnerable to an illness. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where a lot of anti-vaxxers will say something along the lines of, when you drink and drive, that's put, you know, that's your choice to put something in your body. But when you don't get vaccinated, like you don't have a choice about whether or not to put something in your body if you're going to force me to by not letting me go to school or something, right? Um, and that's why I always like to also liken it a little bit to, you know, <clears throat> it's your choice not to wear a shirt, sir, but, but we can't serve you food in this restaurant because it is a public health risk to have your gross, hairy chest eating alongside our nice, clothed patrons. And so sometimes the choice not to do something really is a public health risk. Yeah, I think an even more uh, striking example would be, you know, there are rules around the preparation of food. You know, sure, when you want to eat at a restaurant, you need to wear a, a shirt, but there are rules around the preparation of food. And the public health department has strict requirements for the temperature that refrigerators have to be at um, and about washing hands and general cleanliness of the restaurant. And those those rules that are there to help protect the, the public health of of the community. And if, if a chef doesn't want to wash his hands, I don't want to have the food that he's preparing. But that's his choice. He doesn't have to be a chef. Yeah, sure. Bring bring me back to my uh, traumatic days of food service. <laughs> I would say also, uh, 
equally concerning is the legislation that we're seeing that's dismantling our public health systems in a lot of states, removing their authority to add vaccines to the schedule for school entry. So if we were to, you know, come up with some great new vaccine for, let's say, RSV or strep throat, and we couldn't, they, they wouldn't be able to add that to the schedule, which is, I think, a little frightening and serious, a, 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 a lot of overreach by our state legislatures. Um, and also, you know, who can predict the next pandemic? And at this point, we have seen legislation that prevents the public health department from declaring a quarantine in a school if there's an outbreak of a, of a disease, of a contagious disease, or um, even uh, as North Point just pointed out about restaurants, uh, they've removed so much public health authority that they don't have authority over restaurant uh, inspections in some states at this point. Because oh, dear of the legislation that, yeah, Because of the legislation that's happened in this last year. And um, I think that at the end of the day, the people that will suffer the most from this are our underserved populations, just as we just saw happen with COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, um, and so I think that that's, that's the most frightening to me for the long term. Right. And, you know, when... We're looking at who is pushing these bills. Um, I know there was a time when you could go to a state house and vaccines had broad support. Um, there might be like the, you know, odd loose cannon here or there um, who kind of got ignored by everyone you know ours was mary franson representative mary franson in minnesota who's still there but it was like oh that's mary franson we just you know ignore her uh but now it seems to be sort of a little bit more mainstream so if the majority of people vaccinate who's this minority who are helping make this so mainstream in state houses right now well, they're not new. They've been organizing since the, you know, for, for decades uh, around the the anti-vaccine agenda. And so um, it's not as if they materialized during the pandemic. They've been here for a long time. Um, they've cultivated relationships with lawmakers for a long time. And and with the, the rhetoric around COVID and the attention that these lawmakers are able to get around COVID vaccine requirements, uh, it seems politically expedient for them to um, welcome the anti-vaxxers into their their constituency. And so because they're able to get attention uh, about the issue and there are activists who are well-organized and experienced doing this work, these lawmakers are are taking advantage of the situation uh, to to entrench their positions. And so uh, it's not new, it's just a, 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 it's the circumstances have allowed them to gain more power. Right, and it's it's interesting because it's the exact opposite of what people would have predicted. They would have thought, oh, a big, you know, pandemic public health crisis, clearly people will start seeing the value of public health and will start funding public health i think that's what we all thought was going to happen Um, oh i did not (laughs) but i've had a different experience with a recent measles outbreak so uh becky how about you 
yeah, I I thought that uh, I thought it was going to change things. I thought that this project wasn't going to go anywhere because the pandemic hit, and you know everybody was going to you know go get their kids their shots. And about a week later, I think I saw the after I had that thought, I saw the first um, mask burning protest. And so that that thought was short lived. That the, the optimism was short lived after I saw that. So it's a it's a pretty gross grab for power to use public health as a wedge issue or a culture wars issue. Is there any hope anywhere out there that we can somehow be bipartisan on anything vaccine related? We don't want this to be partisan. You know, we believe that vaccines and public health, they're they're quarterstones of our modern society. And we want elected officials to recognize that there is strong scientific basis for the safety and efficacy of vaccines and public health in general. And so we, we want to bring this issue back to the center. We don't want to further entrench it. We want to cultivate relationships between lawmakers, scientists, physicians, and, and everyday constituents so that they understand that this matters to, to me, to you, to all Americans and that we need to be thinking about how do we protect the most vulnerable from these diseases. And so there is hope and um, you know we're just one small organization hoping to hoping and helping to, to turn the tide around attitudes um, in a, a small minority of lawmakers that have outsides power. Okay, great. Becky, did you want to add anything? Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, prior to the pandemic, when we saw anti-vaccine activism, we saw on both the far left and the far right. Um, and it was just a very interesting political dynamic. Um, Post-pandemic, for whatever reason, we have seen it shift to the very far right. Um, and so we're really hoping to bring back some of those those folks in the middle, our moderates, and, and make sure that they're understanding. And we do see a lot of them. They're just not very vocal because they don't get as many phone calls as they do from the, the anti-vaxxers. So um, we think it's really just really important that we start making our voices heard uh, with our elected officials um, so that they know that we're out there, we value safe schools and safe communities, and, and we value public health. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that um, we're going to be able to get to a place where we can find bills that people can agree on across the aisle and feel good about that they're protecting their communities. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to find out more about safe communities, where can they go? You can visit our website at safecommuniesCoalition.org. You can follow us on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, on Twitter, we are Safe C O M M C O. So Safe Com Co. Safe Com Co. I like it. I like it a lot. Thank you so much, Becky and North, for joining us today. Thank you. We really appreciate it, Karen, and uh, hope to connect with some of your listeners. Absolutely. All right, folks, thank you for listening today. I just want to remind you to go ahead and look at what's happening in your state as far as policy and vaccine legislation. Uh, until then, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org 
And you can also find us in your phone's app store, because we have an app for that. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, a pediatrician here at Langtrans Hospital, Des Moines. Pretty much just find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD. To learn more, visit Faxtalk.